right, shalom, everybody. It's story hour. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and this week's selection, once again, is He Walked the Americas. It's a good read. I'm enjoying it. Now, I was getting the, the sense last week that, you know, when it talks about the prophet being a white prophet, okay, some people, I, th I think people's minds immediately go to, like, Deutschland, to, you know, the Aryan, the Aryans, like, you know, Sweden and Denmark and Iceland, you know, this, like, you know, these, like, Nordic elves or Vikings or something like that. And, you know, let's get some context here, right? We're talking about the Native American peoples, as well as Central America and South America. And you look at some of the indigenous down there, they can get really dark skins. And, of course, you know, the, the Native Americans have this... The, would have this reddish hue and stuff. So when we're talking about a white person, uh, who were the first, according to the official narrative that came to America, again, this is the official narrative, they were the Spaniards. And now if you can't, you know, they're, they're what we call the Hispanic race. And some of them might consider themselves people of color. I don't really know. But to a, a Spaniard, uh, to my knowledge, uh, were some of the white people that were coming over to uh, America in the late 1400s, early 1500s. All that to say that if you have a individual who has some um, kind of brown skin tones, Mediterranean look, you know, like the French people, French people are white, but you go to France, they're dark skinned. Um, Italy and Spain, all that, you know, the even Israel, all that area there, um, you know, I'm to the Native Americans, he would have been white. At least that's what I'm putting forward, and I'm sticking to it. I could be wrong. Maybe he was. Uh, <laughs> maybe he was Aryan. Maybe he was a, a Nordic elf from Lord of the Rings. I highly doubt it, though. All right. Let's see where see where we left off. We left off on page one eighteen. If you are following along, this is called the bowstring of power. And this section right here takes place in Mexico. As the Lord of Wind and Water, Quetzalcoatl, the quiet healer, found himself the most powerful ruler on the entire face of the earth. I can't say planet. Whenever it says planet, I'm just going to say the earth or the plane or the realm. How about that? For if great Rome had clashed with Tola in that day when the star of each was brightest, mighty Rome would have met her master. No guess is this, but based on a Toltec secret, a certain means of hardening copper beyond the strength of white man's steel, a secret which perished with the Toltecs and now lives only in tradition, that limbo of things long forgotten. To the master came the bowstring of power. It was unmasked and embarrassingly unexpected. His last wish was anticipated. His word was law, his desires unquestioned. His desires unquestioned. He set about choosing 12 disciples as he had done with each previous nation. From among them, he would leave a leader who would carry on his office after the prophet had departed. And of course, we see this in the New Testament with Kepha or Peter. He had a small pyramid uncovered where along the olden stairway were the sinuous bodies, the giant serpents. These, he knew, were the symbols of water. Hmm, I'll, put a little, I'll put a red flag on that one. 
shining uh, iridescent among the gold work in the sunlight. On their unlifted heads, he placed plumes of gold and silver, of metal so fine spun they seemed not to be metal, but truly the wind clouds over the oceans. This temple he dedicated to the one Elohim, whom he called the great spirit or the great Ruach, the mighty one who has no image. Then he changed the Toltec temples. Removed were the idols, gone the sacrifices, finished were the rooms with lovely mosaics, each room in the color of its own direction. South was finished in silver and living pearl with scrolls of paradise feathers, while the room of the west symbolizing the sunset ocean was done in shades of turquoise, turquoise and emerald with feather scrolls from the, uh, there's a bird I can't pronounce, the, the zoo, uh, the zoo toddle, I guess. I'm going to stick with it, the zoo toddle. And other birds of a bluish iridescence. For him, they abandoned slavery, and they also changed their dances so that the anciently honored rituals became instead rich living prayers moving in song and color. For five days, the ceremonies lasted, as they had in times long vanished. Only now the people were happy. Gone were the horrors of war, slavery, hatred, and bloody sacrifices, and the people felt like singing. He organized great choruses of singers, which chanted from mountain to mountain, accompanied by orchestras or musicians. He brought in long wood and middle uh, marembas, pans pipes made into four man organs and harps and flutes from other nations with instructors in the art of playing them, while drums of many types and sizes made up the percussion section together with conch shells, rattles and other instruments of depth and sweetness liquefying the air with music. A tale is told of how a captain returning to Tula with his successful army found instead of the usual welcome and the sacrifice of the chained captives a peculiar uh, disinterest in war and fighting. The captives were returned home with presents. Even the temples were strangely different. Disgruntled, he gathered his men about him and murmured so loud at these conditions that during the evening came a summons. The captain was escorted to the temple. There in the silence of the torches stood a number of white-robed figures, one of whom came forward toward him. No longer did the very walls reek of horror, of horror, but were exquisite with color and the perfumed scent of cedar. And there among them, alone save for his distant disciples, waited the healer. The captain stopped and stared about him. He was no prisoner being brought to trial, as indeed his men had hinted. These men were unarmed. In fact, only he, as was due his profession, carried the short sword, sharp as a razor, and only he had shield and helmet. Yet there was something about this person, this foreign usurping stranger who had hypnotized the Toltecs. This man they called the Feathered Serpent, Lord over wind and water, which protected him far more than weapons. See, now this is really tripping me out here. Uh, the idea that they called him the feathered serpent because all my research, you know, that the feathered serpents are the watchers. So uh, the, the, the the plume serpent people, the the uh, reptilians, the snakes with the with the feathers. So take this for what it is now. And I want to remind you all that this is a story, according to them, that is happening like 2000 years ago. Now, where this falls on our timeline, we can we can all 
sit around and guess. However, these were not written down. These are oral stories that are passed down. And the people that are remaining with these stories that are talking to the author about this, they might be filling in details that, you know, didn't exactly happen this way, right? They might be mixing some things. But I think what we're looking for through all this is the consistency of this prophet who is walking the Americas and, you know, bringing them to the law of his, of the great spirit father. All right. So continuing. So I'll, I'll just because I read something that I go, I don't know about that. Doesn't make all of this untrue. You guys following? The captain stopped in strange confusion. And so, and so well had the, had, oh man, I'm having a hard time tonight. And so well had he practiced his speech. So loudly had his men cheered him. This speech of anger held all his convictions, and now the words were gone, vanished like the winter snow upon the masses. There is no need for you to tell me, he heard a soft, rich voice saying. I know your thoughts, and you have your point. You fear for your country, you, yet you are mistaken. You are trying to bind the infant so that it will always fit your, the cradle. Your enemy is not those harassed wild tribes. Your enemy is the law of the jungle. Convert these people and make them happy. Then there will be no need of your army. The captain thought bitterly of the future. With this dreamer in the temple, where would his country end? The prophet answered in a strange language. This disciples, or maybe that these disciples who had been listening at a respectful distance, stared at one another. In memory, young Makoa, I am in a tangled jungle where a little boy was clawed by a tiger. The jaw of the captain sagged in amazement, and he lifted his head and stared at the healer with eyes puzzled and unbelieving. Then again, Kate Zoll spoke in Toltec. It is not this or the nation which matters. Tribes will change. They merge and mingle. To look through the eyes of the tribe is the small view. Yea, Tula will die as well Ek Balaam. Other great nations will grow and vanish, but their blood will go on living. The jade and pearls from this very temple will someday go into jewelry for human ad adornment. But among the people throughout the nations, my words will go on living. You think I seek the bowstring of power for what? Food, fame, carnal living? The first two I have never lacked. But the last, I have no interest because it is not of my father. With the means of life, I am the teacher. The ends belong to the Almighty. Slowly, the captain kneeled to the marble, took off his helmet, unbuckled his short swords, and upon them laid his fanged shield, whispering in a voice husky and awestruck, Forgive a mind which has been blinded. Forgive me, O Tio Wakan. And then we see an author's note there. This legend told the author by several Indians with an interpreter at the site of the ruins of Teoti Huacan. I thought because of the connection with the Guatemalan religion, so far away, authentic enough to include. Here's another story from Mexico, the coming of the visions. In the days of ancient Tula, many men were, were retained by the monarch to make life merry and full of nonsense in the courtyards of the emperor. These were the men too short of stature or hunchbacks not fit for the army. They were trained from childhood as clowns and funsters in all the devious ways of humor. 
When these men came before the prophet, he saw the tears behind their laughter, and he stretched forth his hand and healed them, so they were men like any other. Now no longer strange or crude of feature, they would never leave the healer. They became his constant shadows, following him in all his travels. It was not long before these men realized that some great burden waited upon their master. Some strange unspoken secret haunted his lonely footsteps and followed him along the parkways. Unable to lift his spirits with laughter, they conspired with one another to probe him from him the cause of his suffering. Therefore, one day in the parkways, they gathered about him and began asking questions. Why do you stare at yonder bushes? Is there something there which we see not? Yea, my friends, I see an earthquake. It is a very violent earthquake. Rocks are falling from the mountains. Our beautiful buildings of Tola are crumbling. My friends, I see the end of Tolan. The clowns stared wide-eyed at the prophet. Why do you not then tell the people? It is far in the future, and they could not stop it. Are you certain they could not stop it? Yea, some of this is retribution. Perhaps I have been remiss in my teaching. Nay, O master, none could be greater. Then I must pray for the reason. When you learn of the reason, O Kate Zal, will you not then tell the people? Yea, then I shall tell the people. In the meantime, I ask that you do not tell them. May we ask you this, these burdensome visions, tell us how long have you had them? For some time now, and they grow upon me. I can even read the dates of the cycles. Would that I could know its meaning. You know then the time of the earthquake? Yea, it is true, I know it. This date, will you tell this to the people? Yea, on the day when I leave Tola. The clown stared with eyes which were unbelieving. You are planning to forsake Tolan? Nay, not all of the empire. I shall make my way to fair uh, Kulula. And from thence I must teach all of the wild tribes through many distant mountains, and someday I shall leave fair Tolan. You will grieve to the soul of the Toltecs, and they will never understand your leaving. Yea, they will see why I go teaching. I must be about my father's business. Then we shall follow you, great Kate Zal. The clowns were right about the prophet's announcement that soon he was about to leave Tola. Strange tales were spread throughout the empire. It was never fully understood by the Toltecs why the prophet should wish to leave Tola. Not even after he had told them about the visions and the speech of his departure. Of course, he had often gone to the Wa tribes and on other trips through the mountains, yet he had always come back to the city. Now when he said that he was leaving forever, there was great lamentation. Some whispered that he had been given some chocolate <laughs> they <probably, laughs> or other drink that was enchanted and which gave the uh, imbiber a crazy desire to wander far beyond the distant horizon because it was search. Well, if I had chocolate, that would just make me want to go to the chocolate factory for more chocolate. Because it was certain, the Toltecs argued that no man in his right mind would forsake Tola, the golden. Remember now from last week, this is the, the city of gold. Only the clowns and the priesthood suspended the real truth, and why his shoulders always drooped with sorrow. There was one more time when the clowns pressed him, when once again they were alone in the parkways. Do you still intend to tell the people, yea, in my final oration? Then where will you go, master? 
I go up into the snows of Popo, known to all men as the smoker. But the ice of his hair is eternal whiteness. I know, but I must go alone to my father. I must look beyond the third cycle. Then we shall follow after, master. Nay, I must forbid you to follow. Then boldly one of the funsters spoke up. It is beyond your power to forbid us. Whether you go, we shall follow. I pray that you do not go with me. We shall see, beloved master, the clown said, smiling at one another like children who shared some mischievous secret. We shall see when you leave, Tola. Uh, so far, this kind of reminds me of Enoch going to ascend and all the people who wanted to follow with him. So the next section is still Mexico, the prophecy of Tola. Page 125, if you need caught up. Some shimmering bits of his last oration with its strange revelations of the future has come down to us from that bitter evening when Kate Zoll bid farewell to his weeping Toltecs. Usually he spoke at dawn, but this time it was almost twilight and the weather seemed to fit the mood of the moment. When many were the tears mingling with the raindrops, many were the shoulders drooping at the sound of the cockshell trumpet, Kate Zaw climbed for the last time the hill of loud outcrying. He began by naming his successor, the new uh, Quetzalcoatl, one of the most saintly, uh, one of the most saintly from the priesthood. This had been known for the ritual of ordination of laying on of hands and of the crown of Quetzal feathers had been going on for days and evenings. Then at last he began speaking. He told them of his deep-felt sadness, for even as he was loved here, so did he love Tola. Here the happiest hours of his lifetime had been spent with his beloved Toltecs, but a strange burden had been laid upon him, and he could not endure its dark foreboding. He began to speak of the visions. They were not of the present, but of the future. Even Tola was becoming a nightmare. The Toltecs gasped in consternation. How could Tola be a nightmare? He began his explanation. Though he lived in the present, yet did the future press in around him. This was his real reason for leaving Tola, not the silly ones given by tongues which were wagging. These were strange visions which were growing upon him. Even stronger were they among the wild tribes, driving down the reason for what he was seeing. They had to do with the sacrificers. Ever these visions were growing upon him, ever more clearly could he see the distance, even to the dates. Now his vision was sweeping the third cycle, long after the fall of Tola. The Toltecs gasped aloud in horror. Nay, not by war as you are thinking. This city's end shall come with an earthquake, many generations distant. Restless drums within the mountains are the dancing sacrificers. The prophet Quetzal is but a memory. Forgotten is Teowakan. Let this be a sign unto you. Closely watch Popo, the smoker. When he seems restless, I, I'm assuming this is a volcano, the uh, Popo, the smoker. When he seems restless, forsake your tola, but take your books and all your learning. Have caves ready deep within the jungles. There leave them for the future ages. As I speak now from the mountain and look into the plaza of the immortals, I see a different golden city. The people have drifted from the one Elohim, and strange revelries are held in tola. Kate Zal is but a name in history. 
Then shall come the retribution. With flames, the mountains begin to speak. This peak where I am standing, known to men as Zazitepec, hell of loud outcrying, shall explode in fire. Then no man shall see it forever after. With horrible growling shall the land be shaken, furious, furiously as the wolf does shake the rabbit. By day the light of the sun shall be darkened, and by night a new volcano shall cover the sky with comets of red fire. Down shall tumble all the temples, and the walls of the houses become as rubble. Thus shall end this proud city, and with it the power of mighty Tolan. When the stag has fallen, the wolf pack is brave. Now shall come the sacrificers, marching to power throughout the broad land. Armies shall come to Tola for plunder, but the jewels are there for this taking. Thus begins another cycle called the cycle of the sacrificers. For a, for a while, this was the end of visions, but then I saw another cycle. Tonight we shall walk there together. Remember to tell your children so that they in turn may warn their offspring. Down from the north came men brandishing axes and taking war dogs into battle. They are the first wave of many invasions, and they are known as Chikamikas, from the warlike dogs who go with them to battle. They are met by the restless serpents, the takers of men, the sacrificers. So it's interesting here that it, it talks about the serpent uh, in the negative and the positive. Seems like there's good serpents, then there's bad serpents. And of course, the serpent. Long have I tried to teach these children, but they now turn their heads away from my precepts. They make war, but for the captives, as it has been from time forgotten. Horror shall come to the broad land. All shall dwell in fear of that black robed priesthood who kill their captives to feed their idols. Daily my father's law is broken. Hourly do the great stones strip with fresh blood because they think these rocks should be nourished. Watching this cycle of sacrificing is a heavy burden to my soul. Poor, pitiful, misled people. Listen carefully that you may tell them my words after Kate Zoll is but a memory. There is a cycle beyond this one. If they do not heed this warning, before that cycle comes upon them, there is a man pale of features and like unto me bearded. Trust him not. He is not Quetzal. He leads the sacrificers into battle. He calls himself Kuitzelpo Chitli, the bearded one who conquers. He shall later meet with a great warrior and shall himself become a sacrificer to the idol of the tiger. Wow, this is getting interesting. This, uh, <laughs> another bearded man all right um i was i was trying to think if this guy was like another uh indigenous individual or a one of the, the white people coming over so we'll, we'll have to keep reading and find out now the sacrificers march to power go my people to the jungles hide your treasures in the deep caves especially the ancient histories most books have gone into hiding as the cycle spirals in horror except those spared by the bloody priesthood. Learning has been conquered by the law of the jungle, but each day speeds the retribution. Mark you well, for there shall be portents. A strange star shall cross the heavens, and all the people looking upward 
at the time grows ever closer, shall remember tonight and the words of Kate Zoll. To one another they shall whisper, I fear the time has come upon us. Woe unto the sacrificers. The year is that of Titek Patel, when the dawn star set loud pole, sometimes called, uh, this is killing me here, Lazical Pan Tikutli Crosses, uh, or let me try that again. Tilaskal Pan Tikulti. Okay, so when that star, the dawn star, crosses the sun for its 13th crossing after the fall of Tolab, then will you know this cycle is ended. That you may remember what I am saying. I have caused to be carved a giant dark boulder, highly polished and marked forever with the dawn star's future cycles. This rock has been placed in the temple. Massive is the rock and well calculated to survive the time of earthquake and pillage far into the time of the future. Upon the top is the 13th Akatl. Remember this date. It is the time of warning. With the binding date comes the retribution. And um, it says the seed notes on the calendar stone. I don't know where those notes are. Maybe we'll come across them. Stand with me in the year of Titek Patel. Look across the Sunrise Ocean, the Sunrise Ocean, excuse me. Three ships come like great birds flying. They land. Out come men in metal garments, carrying rods with which speak with thunder and kill at a distance. These men are bearded and pale of feature. They come ashore and I see them kneeling. Above them I see a great cross standing. That is well. If these men are true to the symbol they carry, you need have no fear of them. For no one who is true to that symbol will ever carry it into battle. Therefore, hold aloft your great cross and go forth to meet them. They cannot fail to know that symbol and would not fire the rods upon it, nor upon these who stand in its shadow. Well, they know that what is done to my people is done also unto me. The prophet hesitated a moment, and then he continued more softly. When the years have come to their full binding, the metal tip boots of the strangers will be heard in all the bloody temples. Then throughout the broad land has begun the third cycle. As yet, I cannot see beyond it. This is why I am leaving Tola. There is much work to be done among the wild tribes to turn heavy-handed destiny from them. I leave you then the most fundamental law of my father for your guiding life pattern. Always love one another. For this night, Kate Saul has spoken. Now, I think that's kind of just point out a couple of things here. And you guys know that the timeline I'm looking at, that uh, the Millennial Kingdom, I believe, came to an end when the Spaniards, according to, picking up where the official history is, uh, came over to the Americas. All right. So, and we can all talk about, you know, who was already here, cities, you know, Tartaria, all that kind of stuff. But in the official narrative that the, the Spaniards come over, white people out, and that's, of course, what he's talking about here. And I found it interesting that um, he's saying that this is the, let me read this again. Uh, what is it about the third cycle? So then throughout the broadland has begun the third cycle. It'll be interesting to see how that develops, what he's talking about there. Um, and yeah, so the, and he also said that he couldn't see beyond this. I found that really fascinating as well. All right, Mexico, the calendar stone. Okay, so it said, see notes on it. I guess this is it. 
There is a mighty carved rock which is hanging in the National Museum of Mexico City. It was cut from uh, porphyry, a volcanic stone which takes a high polish. This boulder is 11 feet across, 3 feet thick, and even in its present state of mutilation, it weighs 24 tons. For many years after its discovery in the 18th century, it was thought to be Aztec and was called the Aztec Calendar Stone. Now scientists who have studied the calendars of Mexico realize it is far beyond the comprehension of the Aztecs, and so it is moving backward in time to the age of Tola and the Toltec Empire. The Aztecs had but a 52-year ritualistic calendar, which is but a degenerate copy of the Toltec masterpiece of astronomical observation. In more ways than that of the calendar did the, let me, in more ways than that of the calendar did the Aztecs throw the learning of Mexican civilizations back a thousand years. The Aztecs were the first conquerors to burn the ancient books, and what survived the Holocaust of the Aztecs were consumed by the Spanish. That's a bummer. The guides at the museum are pleased to point out to the tourists the transits of the planets, the procession of the equinoxes and other marvels of learning locked up on the ancient calendar stone, which places it ahead of the European knowledge of its day by a millennium. The enormous rock of sacrifice, now being called the Rock of the Gladiators, is also calendrical, or a calendar, but perhaps more ancient and less understood than the Toltec calendar stone. And then here is a, a picture here of the... Um, the Toltec calendar stone, if you can see that. Try to get focused in there for you. That it was used for the purposes of human sacrifice by the Aztecs is unmistakable. But if one looks closely, it can be seen that the channel to carry out the blood of the victim was chiseled through the beautiful ancient carving. The marks about the base were made by the axes of the Spanish conquerors, who finally gave up when it broke their instruments and buried the ancient monument deep in the mud. Once the Toltec calendar stone was also thought to have been buried by the Spanish. However, the Indians now tell a far more comprehensive story, which is gaining precedence, as more and more full-blooded Indians in Mexico take their doctorates in various branches of archaeology and anthropology. The Toltec calendar stone, having been taken from ravaged Tulsa first by the Chikimikas, and then in turn by the Aztecs, was placed in the Aztec temple in Tenochtitlan, or Mexico City, so that the carved face stood outward where the people could see it. If they had fully understood what they were doing, they might not have done so. As it was, the people watched with ever-increasing apprehension the approach of the time of warning, which was the uppermost glyph. Apparently, a large aloe like the uh, Moggy plant, the sacred plant of the Aztecs, and about it as well as the container which held it were 13 circles representing stars. As the time approached, near panic took place in all the land, so the emperor, Moctezuma, had a new smaller calendar stone made without a date of warning and buried the original deeply under the mud of the streets. Thus he thought to banish the threat to his throne and empire predicted so long before. It becomes increasingly evident that if the Aztecs had understood this calendar and its predictions, they would not have placed it in their main temple in the first place. 
Nevertheless, the people had not forgotten the Toltec calendar stone. And when the first two centuries of the conquest had passed, the calendar stone was again dug up and returned to its present place of honor in the National Museum, where it covers most of the great blank wall facing the entrance, so that it is the first sight to greet the visitor. There is another idea expressed by Leon Gamma, who saw the quote-unquote dark rock when it was first uncovered. Noting that the circle of carving does not exactly correspond to the square, he theorized that there was another quote-unquote cycle or companion piece. Probably this was the earliest first cycle or the time following the conquest, which would include the present with a question mark, which would include the present. Were there many, were there more cycles than these? Bancroft writing about a century after Gamma, notes that no systematic search for the ancient monuments such as these two mentioned, i.e. the Toltec calendar stone and the altar of the, of the gladiators has ever been made. Furthermore, some sculptured blocks of the greatest scientific value have actually been seen while excavating for large buildings, but they have again been covered up and allowed to remain undisturbed under the pavements and public parks of a great modern metropolis. Incidentally, Speaking of the Toltec calendar stone, uh, the Toltec calendar stone, Cortez arrived in the year of Tetec Patel, as prophesied so long before in Tola by the prophet. Ah, so Cortez is the culprit. I knew it all along. All right, legend of the pass of Papo. I can't even read it. It's in cursive. Maybe you can read it on screen. That's the, yeah, can you read that? I can't read that. All right. Legend of the Pass of something or other that begins with a P. Through a mist of dancing snowflakes moved a lonely figure dressed in a long white mantle. All about were moving snowflakes like a shower of flying sea foam, covering everything with silver. The, the, um, bared head of the man was crested with whiteness his beard and lashes were stiff with hoarfrost he moved slowly then staggered against a ledge of darkened lava lightly brushed with the dust of snowflakes there he slumped and rested kneeling suddenly the darkness of the heavens was split with a blinding bolt of lightning with its flash the man could see the valley and sobbing his head fell forward his cold lips moved out a silent prayer. Take me to thy bosom, Father. I have seen enough. I am weary and sick with the visions of the future. Cover me with thy mantle and leave my body here on Popo, on Popo, the mighty smoker. Then a strange miracle happened. The storm cloud parted, and in the magnificent rays of the sun, the man looked downward at a vision. Lit by a shaft of golden sunlight was a city in the valley. And the man straightened, watching, his hands pressed upon the dark ledge while he stared in awe and wonder. Today in the vale of Temipalco, high in the snowy pass or, or Popo, the natives say there is a rock ledge where at times one can see a strange sight. There is an imprint of hands in the lava and the curve of a body sagging as if one had knelt there in anguish and had stared backward toward Tola. Now, I'm assuming there that this is speaking of the prophet. And what I particularly liked about that uh, story was that it's painting him as, you know, uh, 
emotional, right? Having feelings and not having all the answer, like not knowing everything about the future, right? He 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 sees things that are coming, but um, yeah, I think that a lot of times when we think about the resurrected Yahusha Hamashiach, you know, it's like this, you know, all-knowing type of individual. Um, you know, maybe that's not so. All right, the next section, also still in Mexico. Uh, the tree of the lightning. And I will point out that this is, of course, in the Gospels, where he does talk about things he doesn't know. Like uh, he says, only my father knows the day or the hour, right? There are things that he does not know. So to Kwa uh, Titlan also came the healer past an ancient ruined city. No one seemed to know of its history, and the prophet wandered onward to a giant tree beneath whose branches the plumed serpent rested. As the people pressed around him, the prophet seemed quiet and weary. If you cannot remember your ancient cities, then how can you remember all the precepts which I have taught you? Can you retain them through the future, through the coming dawn star cycles, or must you return to the sacrificers? Well, that's interesting right there because here he's saying he's taught them all of these precepts that came from his father, right? Well, we... We have the written precepts down in the Torah, right? Um, and in this book, of course, they're not telling us. They, they give us a few, like he doesn't want people going and murdering or sacrificing or, you know, these kind of things. Uh, I should say sacrificing children and people. Um, but, you know, there's many precepts here that are not recorded. We shall never forget you, Master. Kate Zoll smiled. There, then a woman pushed forward, holding closely a crying baby. Oh, please say that you will hold my baby. He shook his head slowly and sadly. I have lost my power. Now I am a man like any other. From the people, there were cries of unbelief. He held aloft his hand for quiet. Sit down and I will tell a story. On the grass, they gathered around him. There walked one time the streets of Tola, a man who could see the future. It pressed in upon him from the parkways from the temples and the happy people. Finally, he was impelled to leave the city. He must go into the highest mountain and there try to reach the great spirit. Of what use were these years of teaching a peace religion when the future was so filled with warfare? When would there be an end to this carnage? I don't know about you guys, I'm finding this fascinating. This reminds me of uh, Odes of Solomon where uh, the the writer there is identified as Mashiach, and he's he's sad because uh, he, he, of all the oppression. You guys know my theory that it's a millennial kingdom kingdom piece, and all the oppression and the violence and so on and so forth. And he's like, I'm I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Continuing, yet when he tried to leave the city, those who had been dwarfs and hunchbacks, whom he had healed, would not forsake him. He pleaded and argued, but they would not leave him. And like disobedient children, they still followed at a distance. Far up in the snows, which are eternal, came the blinding, choking blizzard. In massive choruses came the snowflakes. With howling chanting came the ice wind, and crossing through more snowflake dancers. The man turned, and then he saw the jesters. They had huddled together in a snowbank, looking toward him with eyes which were frozen. He returned and could not warn them. Into hard ice the jesters had become, and his hands could in no wise move them. 
The soul of the man was crushed with sorrow. Now he knew that he had lost favor. He wandered on to the pass of Popo, praying for the great spirit to take him. If I'm reading this right, the jesters who were following him have just turned to snow, like frozen, like they're buried in the snow, which the same story happens in the book of Jasher. And, you know, he, uh, Enoch is going to uh, ascend to the father and he's telling everyone, don't follow me. And they keep following him. And then uh, if you recall, the king goes, uh, the, the king and the men who stayed behind, they go looking for these men. They're all buried in the snow. Uh, the answers came with a crash of lightning and then a shaft of dazzling sunlight. For the first time, he saw beyond the visions. Thus he came back down the mountain, but his power was left behind with the jesters, hard and cold in the snows of Popo. Great Kate Zal pleaded the women, please hold my baby, hold him up against, up against your mantle. But I no longer have the power to heal him or stop his crying if that crying is due to illness. Nay, his limbs are withered. Poor lamb, I should like to heal him, but now I am as any other. I'm finding this a little suspicious, but we'll read it anyway, see what happens. I care not if you cannot heal him. I only ask that in the days which are coming, he may say to the people that once he was held by Kate Zoll. With a smile, the prophet consented and lifted the infant to his shoulder. Then a laughing child ran up with a bow and arrow, which he aimed above the head of the healer, toward the bark of the forest giant. Kate Zoll turned to seize the arrow even as it struck the tree trunk, and a blinding flash came from the heavens. When the people could again look upward, they saw the prophet staring at the great tree trunk, for carved deep in its bark coat was the giant cross, symbol of Kate Zoll and the great spirit. That would be, of course, the Tav. When the people saw this miracle, they were astonished. But yet another miracle awaited them. For as the healer turned to hand back the laughing baby, its limbs were straight and its body was sturdy. Then as one, the people fell down whispering to one another, he is indeed the son of the spirit. He is still Kate Zal, the mighty. Yet the prophet saw that they stared at him strangely. And so he asked for an obsidian mirror. When he looked therein, he saw the reason. No longer he saw there the prophet Atola. The features which stared back at him from the mirror were framed with hair as white as snowflakes, and the beard was as pale as the hoarfrost of Popo, the eyes beneath the brows of silver, still turquoise, still turquoise green as ocean shadows, held a wisdom greater than those which bade farewell to Tola, and there was a deeper peace about them. But the people, looking with love upon him, whispered to one another, how well the snows of Popo become the frame of his lofty features. He is more a god than ever, the magnificent pale one, radiant Kate Zoll. Is the tree of the lightning still alive? Perhaps. It may be the arboreal giant whose arms shelter the plaza of a small town in Mishi Ko, but whose crippled trunk bears the axe marks of hatred. Unfortunately, Cortez the Conqueror stopped here one night when he thought his army defeated. Since then, so violently has Cortez been hated that a high iron fence has had to be built about the ancient monarch to protect the tree from the wrath of the people. Yet if you stop close to the giant and look lovingly upward through its branches, you will see the great cross of the Tree of Lightning. 
The wind which sings through it seems to whisper. I was aged when the Toltec armies passed here on their way to Tola. Here also have other conquerors rested, even before the rise of the Toltecs. For rich and for poor has my shade been poured forth, but once there was a day which was different. He came here in a snow-white mantle. He leaned on my bark and told the people about his terrible night on Popo the Smoker. It was here he discovered that his hair had turned white, even as it was on top of the mountain, and did remain so ever after. It was here that he took the crying infant, believing his power had gone forever. But that power was restored in a crash of lightning, which burned on me his living symbol to go on down throughout the ages. When the earth has entered another cycle, and the scars of the Spanish conquest are gone, restore, O people of ancient Michoko, the Toltec name to this aged monarch, living on down through time's long cycles. Call it once more Sacred Tree of the Lightning, and remember when you do so that it is sacred, this living thing once touched by the prophet. All right, still in Mexico, the legend of Colula. And then this is the, the pyramid at uh, Quetzal, right there. All right, stopping for a drink. Page 140, if you need caught up. I think we're about halfway done today. Kalula was called the sacred city, for it was towered with many temples, as many as there were days in the sun here. This was the second city of mighty Tolan, and greatly beloved was the plume serpent, the fair god of wind and water. Here Quetzal came and constructed his greatest temple, the mighty pyramid of Quetzalcoatl, with a greater base than Egypt's uh, Cheops. There is a legend that it was begun by Zelhua, the thunderer, after the flood of the destruction. However, it was finished by the healer. Huh. Legends say it was fashioned of stone blocks, but Quetzal covered its sides with metal, gold, and jewel, and encrusted until it shimmered in exquisite beauty. When the sunlight fell upon it, the glow was as from a thousand million mirrors. Yet loveliest of all was the temple by torchlight when the dancers moved upon it during the nights of festival dancing. Like Tola, here too were the Toltec parkways, wire netted and filled with feathered singers. Here too the vast maze of markets and the wide white city of the people. In the great temple, the plumed serpent fashioned the hall of the four directions. To the east was the golden room of the sunrise. To the north, the crimson of the flame curtains which dropped down from the skies in winter. To the west, the blue of the sunset ocean, mosaic and turquoise and emerald with the bluish iridescence of the uh, Zultotl. While in the south, for the snows of the far lands, this room was finished in pearl and silver with the frost-like beauty of delicate feathers. Here the prophet blessed his children, the seeds ready for the planting, and the animals belonging to the farmers. Gone today is its ancient beauty. The Aztecs, when they came to power, did not bow to Quetzalcoatl. They did not touch his pyramid, but they committed the subtle heresy of killing men on the sacred altars to fend off the time of retribution. 
They cannot forget his predictions, and with blood they tried to woo him. With fear and awe, they looked on his temple. This was not true of the Spanish. The bloodiest battle of all, Mexico, was fought over the sacred city. From tire to tire up the Great Pyramid, the battle was fought. And when the Spanish finally reached the summit and had killed all the defenders, they were amazed to see a statue worked in pale marble of a Christ-like man in a flowing mantle standing with outstretched arms to greet them. Furious at what they considered mockery, they set upon the statue with their bloody hatchets, smashing it into a glittering rock pile. Then they turned to plundering the temple. First they tried to destroy the pyramid as they had the statue. With whips they drove the suffering people and told them to tear down the sacred mountain. But the people would rather be killed than deface the old shrine. So the Spanish had to be contented with making their slaves carry up much mud to pour over the monument. The other temples were turned into churches, but the people ignored them. Very surprising to the conquerors was the way of the people. Even in the rain, they traded they trudged up the great hill, kneeling and weeping upon the summit. Heather they brought their sick and injured. Here they carried fruits and seeds for the harvest and the few animals which had been left to them. Seeing this odd veneration, the Spanish constructed a church on the summit and placed therein a statue of the Virgin, calling it the Chapel of Healing, on the spot where once stood an ancient altar. So today the people stream upward, laying gifts before the pale virgin, and as they cross themselves with an ancient symbol, some think but, but of the moment. But there are some whose thoughts move backward to a day when the plumed serpent stood here and gently to their fathers pronounced his blessing. All right, still in Mexico, the grave at Tool. In the days of the prophet, there lived, as today is still living, an aged cedar in the grove of Tool. In the state called Oaxaca, for, uh, for time beyond the history of nations, this tree has been the, an object of worship. It has lived through wars and times of famine. Nations have been born and flourished to greatness, been conquered and turned back to rubble. Yet the great cedar has gone on living. Some said that it was planted by Votan with the seeds he brought from the old red land which sank below the sunrise ocean, and others said it had been called into being by another monarch of forgotten antiquity, namely Tohel the Thunderer. No one knows for certain. When Zal first saw its massive proportions, he ordered a temple to be built near it and called it the Tree of Our Father, saying to the people who gathered around him, Remember to protect this giant always, for it is the oldest thing that is living upon the entire face of our earth. It was there that he watched the Zap Zapoticas dance their calendar dance of the feathers. And as he watched, sometimes by moonlight, he leaned against the younger cedar. Thus the Zapoticas named the, tr the trees the tree of our father and the tree of the pale sun. Garbed in their costumes of pearl and emerald, in nodding gossamer plumes of metal, with costumes of the finest seed silk and topped with rare and exquisite feathers, this dance was a sight of rhythmical beauty. Since the happy days of Kate Zoll, Conquest has taken exquisite costumes, the pride and wealth of the Zapotec people, and today they dance in paper headdresses. 
Yet, as, yet it is whispered in Oaxaca, when the moon is of pale silver and the leaves of the trees are falling, that if no one is watching but the faithful, then the costumes become rare jewels, and the paper changes to the most exquisite featherwork with nodding, iridescent, quetzal feathers. Nor is this all, for on rare occasions a figure dressed in a long white toga with black crosses embroidered about the hemline and hair like the misty pearl of the moonlight leans against the tree of the pale sun and raises his hand in benediction. So uh, this is the base of the trunk of a giant cedar of tulle called the tree of the father right here. If you can see it, get that in focus. It doesn't want to focus. Hmm. Whatever. I hold it there a second. I'll focus. All right. The legends of travel. On the high mountain crest of Oaxaca, Mexico, is the ruins of a city extending along the mountain ridge. Tours standing on the ruins of the pyramids and buildings now being excavated from the rubble of ages see the rainwater of the storm vanish through the ancient sewers, which have not yet been completely uncovered. Here are to be seen strange rock carvings. One seems to be the court of, of an Egyptian pharaoh, and near it is a great ape of Africa, beating its breast and screeching. There are others equally puzzling, apparently a figure of ancient China and a Negro. Here during the excavations was found, along with the exquisite gold work similar to the master smiths or jewelers of ancient Chan Chan, Peru, a Peruvian vase of the typical Nazca cat face design. Both the Nazca Empire and that of Chan Chan were overwhelmed by the rise of the Incas, and before their extinction were great trading empires. This ancient city of Oaxaca, whose ruins run 24 miles long, today renamed Mont Alban, according to carbon dating was sacked and burned about 750 AD which could tell us that the Peruvian empires were also living before this date line. For almost anywhere in the world among those who follow archaeology, the vase of one nation found among the treasures of another means trade. If one rules out trade, then there are many puzzles. Who carried the gourd, the yam, and the pineapple back and forth from the Americas to South Sea Islands? What ships bore the banana or American corn to the far-off Philippines, both plants which must be planted? Throughout the tropics, the lists are endless. The trees from which the Polynesians get their war clubs and those from which they make their bark cloth are to be found in Brazil's Mato Grosso, and the natives there make bark cloth with the same beaters in identical fashion. Among the people are trading legends, and on the ships of the traders rode the prophet. All the merchants wished to have him, for he had a magical power of the ocean. Perhaps it was while in Kalula that he rode to the South American cities. But we know not yet whose ship carried him, whether those of the Mayans, the Toltecs, or the Zapotecans who lived in the beautiful Monte Alban. Or perhaps, again, he rode with the returning Peruvians. Perhaps he spent years on these journeys before again coming home to sacred Kolula. We only know that we can trace him throughout the lands of South America, not only by his Wakia names when his hair was light brown with its reddish head highlights, but also with names as different as the tribes who remember 
and with hair as white as the snows of winter. Sometimes as Tama or Kama or Kaboy, they speak of him, and sometimes as Sumi or Viracoca. Yet the descriptions always tally. His wit, he wears his white mantle with the crosses at the hemline, and his feet are shod in golden sandals. They always remember his hands, which were healing, his hatred of war and of sacrificing. They know the peace sign of his religion and often speak of his control of the water and how he walked it well on its surface. The legend of Kaba Close, page 147, if you need caught up. I think I have some coffee left in here. Hold on a second. I need to do a little refill with my thermos. The city of Kaba Close first saw the pale god, the pale Elohim, when he stopped the tempest and jailed the sea for his ship's landing, then easily walked across the waters. They remembered his strange magnetism, for before him, the fiercest animals lay down and allowed him to caress them. Now, this is really fascinating because we don't get any of this in canonical literature, uh, but in extra-biblical, we see accounts of Yahushua HaMashiach uh, going up to lions, I think wolves, different creatures like that, and actually taming them. And actually, you know, they would just lay down with them. I think there was one account maybe of a dragon. Uh, but so it's interesting to, to see the same things here as we see in some of the infancy Gospels. For his one Elohim, the divine spirit, they built a temple. Then he left them to teach other nations, promising to return to dedicate the temple. Alas for man and his jealous priesthood. The sacrifices were again in power when once more the pale god Elohim, Sume, returned. The priests had busily told the people that this was a demon who had bewitched them. Accordingly, when Sume returned along the highway in his long white mantle and his great staff, keeping his promise to the people to dedicate his temple, Warriors lay in wait behind the bushes, their arrows already strung in their long bows. I wish it would talk more about this great staff because we see the same thing in, um, you know, is this the same staff that uh, Moshe carried that we see in the book of Jasher and other places? The puzzled people led by the black robe sacrifices came forward. Then at a signal from the head priest, the warriors sprang out of the foliage and a rain of arrows went toward the prophet. Standing atop a slight mound, Sumi raised his palms high over his head and called aloud in a foreign language. Then a curious miracle happens. A curtain of flame, fiercely whirling, came down upon him from the heavens, clear up to now with a bright sun shining. This curtain circled all about the healer. The arrows of the Kabakloss warriors could not penetrate the curtain. They glanced off as if from hard rock and struck again through the bowels which had sent them, burying their shafts deep in the breast of the cinders. When the people saw this, they were stricken with terror, and the priesthood fell down sobbing. In the center of the curtain, Sume stood waiting, and when it lifted, he turned his back upon them and walked away sadly along the seashore. His footsteps were pressed deeply in the wet sand, where none have ever been able to erase them. Even today, along the Kaba Kloss River, one can still see the steps of Sume, 
the fair god as he walked away from the wicked city. All right, moving on to Peru, the legend of the three crosses. The golden sandals of the prophet came to Paracas in Peru, South America, as in the land now called Mexico, place of the Mexicans. When he went toward Tula, his coming was announced by trumpeteers sounding the conch shells and drummers talking with tom-toms. For 300 miles from mountain to mountain in all the four directions, the great news traveled. Also, as in the north, the tribesmen answered. Like a flood of churning waters came the people, down from every mountain hamlet, up from every larger village, along each stream in the ships of balsa, that lightweight wood which floats like a dry leaf. From every direction came the people. On a hillside facing the Bay of Paracas stood the healer, looking down on the surging thousands. The sun shone bright on his mantle of silk seed as he held his arm aloft for silence, giving the sign they knew was his peace sign. The people stilled, expectantly waiting. Then from the earth came the terrible rumble which comes before the roar of the fire god, and the earth began to sway and shake beneath them. The people frightened clung together, staring wide-eyed at one another, trying to silence their crying children. In their eyes were unspoken questions. Was the fire Elohim who dwells in the lava, the red blood of the earth, Ah, Museum Kab, showing his anger at this lord of wind and water? Why was he roaring if not in anger? Only the pale one stood there silent, unmoved by all the earth shaking, his arms still raised in benediction. Finally, silence came to the people. Fear not, my children. My father, who rules the earth and the heavens, is not showing his anger. He but shakes the earth to prick my memory. He reminds me that I have a story to tell you. Then the prophet began, began a strange story. Yet he told it so well with such vivid detail that each man felt he had once been a witness, and the silence was so thick that one could hear it. He told them of a land across the ocean where all men were like him. Bearded, he spoke of their houses, their cattle, their clothes and customs, their ships and temples, their metal-clad armies. Then he spoke of a man who had lived there, who healed the people, who taught them and loved them, and in turn was beloved of the people. Yet this man incurred in the priesthood jealousy and anger, which ran like a bad sore, corrupting even those who should have known better. He spoke of the power of a wicked nation who bowed down before many idols. And to a court of this nation, the man was dragged by his captors. Even the judge could see no wrong in him. But as his enemies called furiously for his life, the judge was forced to last condemn the prisoner to be hung upon a cross of dead trees, for such was their strange custom. In prison, the man had been lashed and beaten, and when the day arrived for execution, the prisoner had to carry his great cross to a place upon a hilltop, falling down often upon the hot earth, for he was weak from his stay in prison. Some there were, uh, some there were who tried to help him, yet there were many who cried out against him with curses that showed their livid hatred, while spit mingled with his bloody uh, bowed head. Thus he dragged his cross to a hilltop. To each side and a little behind him, two thieves were fastened to crosses. And then the soldiers made him fast to the big cross by driving knives through his two hands and 
raising up the dead trees so that he could hang there until death at last had released him. These thieves cried out to him for a benediction. They were of good heart, even though they had done wrong. Compared to those who had tried to spread hatred and from their own little self-minded islands were attempting to stamp him with their own evil, which corrupted their souls like a sore overrunning. These thieves were good, and so he blessed them. So just point this out here. I, I actually like when I see these inconsistencies. Um, and here we see instead of one thief that is penitent, it says that both of them uh, were, were penitent. And you guys know that one of the reasons I like inconsistencies is because that's human nature. That's human nature of storytelling. And it, it shows that there is perhaps more truthfulness in the storytelling than, you know, some of this here, I'm looking at this going, okay, I think that maybe they're kind of getting some of this from the Spanish coming over and kind of bleeding this in. I don't really know, but I like those little details that shows that they're keeping to their, uh, their tradition of the story. Then he asked for a drink as the pain hung on him. And at last, as his head fell forward, he asked forgiveness for all who had wronged him. No sooner had this happened than the earth began heaving. The sun was darkened and the people ran screaming. The three figures swung to and fro on the crosses and a fierce wind swept over the hilltop. That's an interesting little note there that the sun was darkened, the people ran screaming. The only description that we get anywhere close to that is in the Gospel of Peter that we've been going through where people are running around with lamps falling into uh, ditches. Then seeing that he was apparently lifeless. Well, that also it adds here uh, a fierce wind swept over the hilltop. That's a nice little addition. Then seeing that he was apparently lifeless, the soldiers brought down the great cross and a man who had been his friend came forward to claim him. This man was wealthy, being the owner of ships which carried goods to the four directions on both of the oceans. That's interesting. Because, as I pointed out, Joseph uh, uh, of uh, Rama, or Arimathea, was probably a ten trader. And I actually said that uh, I think that his ships went, you know, he was based in Britain, um, according to tradition, but his ships, he would have gone down to Egypt. Of course, he went to Judea. This is one of the friends he, one of the reasons he's friends with Pontius Pilate, highly ranked. They put him on the top of the, of the council uh, because of his power. And I had mentioned that he probably went as far as South America. And so now that it's saying that right here. So let me read this again. Um, being the owner of ships which carried goods to the four directions on both of the oceans. He had bought a tomb for the humble healer because he believed his peace religion. To this tomb was the man carried. When he was tended with loving care and laid in the casket, a great rock was rolled against the entrance, lest some try to do him further evil. Yet when the women came there weeping, behold, the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. For a few short days, some said that they had seen him and then he was seen no more. Thus, my children, does the Almighty protect the man who carries his message. And not even one of the earth's greatest nations in all its might has the power to kill him while he follows the wishes of the Almighty. I find that really powerful. And I, I hope you guys understand that that is, this like lines up with my entire philosophy, uh, my entire worldview. So let me read this once again, because this is exactly how I carry myself. And when we talk about, because you can see here that this, 
this prophet is against, you know, shooting people with bows and arrows and all that kind of stuff. He carries a staff with them. But look what it says. Thus, my children, does the Almighty, this is the, the great Father Spirit, protect the man who carries his message, the message of the prophet, of Yahushua HaMashiach. And not even one of the earth's greatest nations in all this might has the power to kill him while he follows the wishes of the Almighty. Now, we, we see this examples with like Yaakov, the brother of Yahushua, who was able to live in Yerushalayim until about 62 AD. And it wasn't until the father was like, okay, you can kill him now that he was killed. There was nothing he could have done about it. He could have got all ramble on them. There's nothing he could have done. It was his time to go. But up to that point in time, he was protected. So too is it with me. And when just now the earth started shaking, it was to remind me of this story which my father had laid upon my heart to tell you so that you, so that you many know more about his peace religion. I think it should say, so that you may know more about his peace religion. All right, we'll give that a pass. As I said, I love to point out other people's typos because I have plenty of them myself. It is said that when he finished speaking, the people could see behind him upon the hillside the shadow of three crosses. After he had gone, the people still seemed to see three crosses. So stonemasons began the work of carving them deeper upon the hillside so that the children of the children would still remember. Today, if you go if you go to the Bay of Paracas and look across at the hillside, you may still see the three crosses. The Great Cross is the center, and six hundred is six hundred feet tall, while the smaller two are to each side of the Great Cross. There is a line which ties each of the smaller crosses to the Great Cross. These huge carvings are indeed strange crosses. They resemble dead trees with limbs turned upward, like arms raised in supplication. Scientists stare at them in utter amazement. Solemnly, they admit their antiquity. These works probably date from the age of Yahusha. But the meaning? That escapes these men who are learned. They can only shake their heads and wonder. The meaning is beyond their understanding. So here's an author's note. The legend of the three crosses and the waters of Veracoca were told me by a native Indian of Peru who was laughingly introduced to me by a Navajo friend as a Navajo. No one would have guessed that he was not until he admitted being a, uh, it's a Quichua. I was grateful for the legends, but I am unable to find them in print either in Bancroft or other authorities. However, they do seem very probable, so I am including them. The described works in both cases are authentic. The line of the crosses is true north-south author. Still in Peru, the legend of the city of Coca. Let me just check here how far I'm going to read tonight. Um, okay. So yeah, I think I'll read a few more pages. This will be my last story, I think. The legend of the city of Coca. By now, the healer was very famous, he figured. Oh, my phone's going off. California is calling me. That's so strange. <laughs> I have my phone here with me all the time. I've been doing this for years. It has never rung during one of these. It rings all day. 
but it has never rung during one of these talks ever. Uh, I don't think you guys have heard one, so that's crazy. All right. And uh, I, I'll just go ahead and say here, uh, I'm getting lots of calls for Ron DeSantis, um, his campaign. I'm not even in Florida. And this is why I guess they have named me an honorary citizen of Florida. Um, I can't vote there, but they keep paying tax dollar money uh, to um, give me messages. All right, campaign uh, campaign messages. All right, last one, Peru, the legend of the city of Coca. By now, the healer was very famous, but it seemed his visits ended with the unhappy one to Coca. Here, the sacrificing priesthood had a strong seat of power. On his first visit, they did not oppose him, knowing that a ship was waiting for him. But the building of a temple... So that's so right here we see remember it started out uh, two sessions ago uh, with three ships pulling up whole entourage he gets out he's the only one they all go away so now he's got a ship here waiting for him so he's obviously organized I mean he's got you know a group of people from across the land that are keep pulling up and taking him places at least that's the way it looks to me. But the building of a temple and a promise to dedicate it became a gnawing worry because of his hold upon the people. The priesthood feared a revolution. And so when news came by obsidian mirrors that the pale god was returning, the priesthood decided to kill him. They had heard about the disaster of Kaba Klaus, but they chose to disbelieve it. And so changed the story that the army was willing to surround him and exterminate this demon. Therefore, careful were the plans they laid out, and with great care was the strategy followed. First, the priesthood lectured the people. This could not be Viracocha, a hero of the most ancient legends. This man was an imposter. He was a demon who had ensnared their reason. He was a devil who wished to turn them from the worship of their ancestral idols. Too long bloodless had been the temples. If the people would not feed them, their ancestral idols would fade away to nothing, and with them the greatness of the people. This man must die. The army, listening, agreed that the creature was an imposter with no greater power than any other. Very well, they would kill him and rid the land of his, very e of his evil power. As the prophet approached the city, the army drew its lines before the people and pushed them back from the highway. From a distance, the prophet saw this, and the forward march of the black robe priesthood. He stopped and climbed upon a small mound and raised his arm high in greeting. Suddenly, the army gave its answer. With the mighty yell of battle, they brandished their spears and started for him, while behind them, the sacrificers, picking up rocks and hurling them at him, called loudly in tones of derision, You pretend to have power, then display it. Save yourself if you are able. For a moment, the prophet hesitated, seeing some of the people weeping. Then he knelt upon the small mound and cried aloud so that all could hear him. O oh, my father, who art in heaven, if it be thy will now to take me, and this be the manner, I am ready. Suddenly the clear air was split with lightning. From out of nowhere came the fire flame. Making a ring about the prophet, it whirled about in magnificent color. The army and the priesthood began to panic, turning about to run backward. A second curtain formed behind them, separating them from the people. Here they were trapped in a sheer in a sheet of horror, which dissolved them into fine-blown ashes before the shocked eyes of the watchers. 
The curtains died down and a terrible quiet left every man without the will of movement. Now the people fell down on their faces, seeing the white robe of the healer was not even singed by the blue hot fire flame. Then a deep voice came in the thunder, rumbling down from the heavens, speaking the words of a foreign language which somehow were simultaneously translated for the people so that they clearly understood the meaning. Go, my son, upon the, thy journey, for thy work in this land is ended. Then the prophet turned and walked away sadly toward the bay where his ship had been waiting. Now the people, ashamed and grieving, followed him at a distance as he walked on toward the ocean. Through the afternoon and into the evening, he passed through the province of, Ca of Canus, not stopping until he reached the seashore. There in the moonlight, holding his robe close about him, he began treading the trail of moonbeams over the quiet shine of the water to where his great ship was riding. Now the people fell down weeping, saying, It was Viracocha returned to us from the land of shadows, and we, his people, did not know him. Today, if you should go to Peru and visit the city of Coca, find an old man who knows the legends and ask him to take you to the place of the lightnings. There, circled about a small mound, you will see the strange rocks near an old road, which the people say were formed on a clear day when an early sun was shining. So light are these rocks that a table-sized boulder can be balanced on the back of one hand. So hot was the fire that formed them. And then author's note here. For this legend, see Bancroft. By using this legend as a wedge, quoting uh, uh, a Quechua Indian from Peru, I learned the following legend of the fountain of Viracocha, which is a sequel from the author. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and end there, I think. I feel like, yeah, I'll go ahead and. Well, let's see. This goes to the Yucatan. Yeah, I'll go ahead and end there. All right, guys, thank you for reading with me this week. It was a little shorter than the last two weeks, but trying to balance it out so we could finish next week. And um, yeah, you know that you know what's crazy about that tree is that uh, I actually talked about that tree in uh, my giant trees paper that I did that I presented to the group last November, December, or, or the whereabouts. And I wasn't quite sure if it was talking about the actual tree when I was reading it, but that that's it right there in Oaxaca. So good stuff. All right, guys, we're going to uh, end on that tonight, and we can go over to the uh, the voice chat room. I'll end the discussion here. So shalom one last time, guys. Mm -hmm.